This is a becoming creature. I am here with the wild and whimsical Egg Prophet, who is known for pioneering a whimsical corner of Twitter, known for its playful vibing, its connectedness to animals and various foods, and a kind of, I guess, magical realism. Egg Prophet, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here today. Um, that was quite a quite a lofty sounding introduction. I'm not sure I'm worthy <laughs> of most of it, but I thank you for your kind words. Yeah, you're like the the Stephen Hawking of whimsy Twitter. But uh, so, what what do you want me to call you? Do you want me to call you Egg? What do you go by? Yeah, you can call me Egg. Um, sure. You can call me Bear if you like. That's the new theme that I'm using because Egg felt a little tired for a little while. So you're welcome to call me Bear. Um, you can even call me Alex if you like. That's my name. I figure people people on Twitter ought to know that too. So you can call me that if you like as well. That's that sounds great, and I'm glad. Yeah, you're reaching into different foods now. First it was eggs, and now it's bears. <laughs> so that's nice. Um, but I actually had someone else I was supposed to interview, surprisingly, also named Alex. Um, but they had an emergency, and uh, you were kind enough to squeeze me into your schedule last minute. So thank you. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of time to prep, so I'm just going to ask you the ones I had prepped for the other interview anyway. Um, <laughs> so let's dive in. What's it like being a hot girl on Twitter? Oh, it's fantastic. I, uh, I've i been taught everything I know by my good friend Mycelium Mage. Mage, if you're listening uh -huh. to this, be mine, baby. Um, he just has a, a very hot girl vibe. For sure. I I think he does. And uh, I mean, every single time he posts a picture, it's just like the other hot girls can't compete, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those curls, those curls. Uh, it's gorgeous. But what are some of the best dating tips for the single guys that are listening? You know, the, the things that guys don't see from the hot girl perspective. I think that if you're a hot guy, you really got to show off your smile. You really got to, you know, get that crinkle around the eyes going. Just smile a lot. It's <laughs> it's what the girls go for, you know. Um, just make them make them feel that they're being appreciated. Make them feel like you're laughing. You know, there's this whole stigma around, oh, girls aren't funny. You got to make them feel like at least if you're not funny, you're at least enjoying your time. I think that's really good advice. What is something about having sex with a girl for the first time that most guys should know? Like in a relationship, like it's the first time they're having sex. What what do guys get confused about or, or think too much about or, you know, get wrapped up in? I think guys should just go into it with abandon. You know, this is mm. the only time you'll ever be able to have sex with this girl for the first time. I think you should just go into yeah. it. Um, you know, just put your heart in. Tell yeah. her you're feeling it. You know, I don't care if you're actually feeling it. Just tell her you're feeling it. <laughs> Jump in with two feet, you know, mm. go crazy. On that point, why is casual sex so bad so often? <laughs> uh, casual sex is so bad because casual anything is just kind of bad. Mm. 
I think that if you're going to do something, you should do it with a twinkle in your eyes, but not casually. Casual is like, you know, it's got a certain sort of, I don't quite care where this goes. No, you should care deeply where, where, where things go. Try to, you know, nudge them the way you want them to go. Um, Yeah. So casual sex is bad because it's casual. I always formalize sex by making sure that um, there is a massive party where everybody attends and knows we're about to have sex. And there's like, she's wearing a crazy dress and we spend thousands of dollars. So that's how, that's how I formalize the sex to make sure it's not as bad as casual sex tends to be. But uh, Aya says men are werewolves or they, they like become these wolfish monsters in bed. Are you a werewolf? No, I'm a bear. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, okay. Yeah. You know, whenever whenever I'm about to have sex, you know my my profile picture where I'm just looking, kind of unsure what to do with this fish. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, it's just just slowly <laughs> eat slowly eating the fish is is what comes afterwards. And there's just like flesh all over your mouth. Just Absolutely. sitting in a pool of water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a horrifying image. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think I saw somewhere you tweeted a while ago that you're in love. Are you still in love? Or what's up? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I'm still in love. It's a good time. You know, it. Mm. it, it, it I saw a tweet on a different account, um, which has since been deleted. Um, the tweet, not the account. um that said you know when you're in love everything rhymes and the dishes don't clatter quite so loud as you're putting them away Hmm. i definitely still feel that you know everything rhymes that's a really nice way to describe like living a life that feels meaningful right like it's kind of a poetic way to say like things there's there's a, a resonance there's a rightness when when you're in love so can you tell me a little bit about what love means to you and like how you think about that and, and feel through it not even necessarily romantic love but i mean that could be a part of it hmm. i think a lot about these big concepts in using like two different sorts of words um this was introduced to me by a good friend whose name is bill who I believe if we talk about some of the questions that were in the replies to your tweet, uh, asking for questions that his name will come up a lot. Um, Mm. and my friend Bill really values the old tradition of having sacred words that, you know, in, in, in passing in normal conversation, you use one word, but when, it doesn't mean the same thing as this sacred word that you only use when you are in a sacred context. And so I've adopted this habit of having capital letter words, um, things like capital L love or capital R real for reality or, you know, capital H health is the one that he most often uses. And these are like sorts of words that you can't really describe giving them a definition doesn't really work because they exist in a way that can like a different plane of reality that's sub sublinguistic um is it like platonic like a platonic ideal of a concept 
kind of, you could say that there's only one sort of love. I suppose that's a good metaphor to use for those who know what a platonic ideal is. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> I kind of do the same thing. Like, uh, I aesthetically capitalize words when I'm both for emphasis, but also to kind of just say that I'm getting at something deeper than, you know, the the simple concept that people are regularly writing about. I think it's a very useful way to go into talking about something like um, if you're talking about lowercase l love, then you're kind of saying I'm participating with the concept as it is popularly discussed. Mm-hmm. And then, but if you're talking about capital L love, it's kind of like saying take a beat on thinking about what I'm trying to talk about here because I'm talking about some something where like I'm improvising in the world with this thing that is ineffable. Yeah. So I feel like I'm doing the second a lot more mm-hmm. recently. It feels very participatory, very improvisational. Um, I'm always creating something new whenever I'm acting in the world. Um, and so I think that <clears throat> I don't really want to define capital L love because that's not something that you can really speak about. And when mm. you try to speak about that, um, then as my friend ben, friend Bill says, you fall into pathology and you start defining things that it's not. And because you're trying to do something that you, you simply can't do. Um, so why are definitions pathological? I wouldn't say that all definitions are pathological. Um, mm. I mean, I'm sure you've seen how, how much I hate it when people tell me how to use my words on the timeline. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm very particular about my words meaning exactly what I want them to, um, and people not telling me that they mean something different than I mean them for. Um, and I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say they're pathological. I think it's very useful to have, um, you know, being able to discuss the same thing. Um, mm. I just think that there are things that you don't need to define because you can feel them. Like you can feel when you're in love. You don't need to have a definition for that. You can feel what it's like. You can write a poem about it. You can, you know, put it into an act. You can buy something for somebody that you love. You can make something for somebody that you love, but you don't have to be able to define it. And by defining it, you're taking it out of, you know, it's living existence. Um, It's, it's, it's flow. You're taking it out of that, that flow that you're in when you're in love and you're trying to say, Oh, I'm going to, to use, you know, the, the concepts from the master and the emissary, you're like taking it into the left brain and trying to pick it apart and turn it into Mm -hmm. something that's spread out on the table in front of you and that you can poke at. Um, and I think it's very useful, but I also think that it kills the alive nature of like the capital L love that's, you know, ineffable and out there, but you can still experience directly. Yeah, I have a question about what you're getting at now. And that's, uh, you said, vibe discourse is making me realize just how much my basic epistemological premises have changed in the last two years. And it is really quite startling. In response, Bungleman says, ask him to elaborate on how his epistemology has changed. And also, what was the first thing he remembers that he can attribute towards that change? And also, Amir says, uh, describe your attitude 
towards the world and your relationship with reality? What does real mean to you? Also, what do you mean by unfolding into space? Now, that's like five questions, but it's, <laughs> it's but that well, we're talking about the same kind of of space about um, reality, epistemology, um, how how this has changed for you. So, can you kind of just attack how your thoughts on interacting with the world and um, interacting with knowledge has has changed and and how it works for you now? I'm going to start with my 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 path into this because sure take your time yeah. you know i think that ontogeny matters um like the 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 my, my personal development matters for who i am i was raised in a very very atheist scientific family um you know no mention of the bible no mention of god quite often explicit denial of god existing and you know sort of mocking of people who believe that there's some supernatural entity who lives in the sky and right. you know changes things um and so as i was growing up that's also what i believed um and mm -hmm. you know around 14 15 that sort of age um i was like you know very reddit atheist sort of thing though i was never on reddit um and I'm very glad that I never stumbled upon less wrong during that period because I would have just jumped into it with two feet wholeheartedly. It's embarrassing to, to, to think of what might've happened. You probably would have became the way I became, which is that <laughs> I was like a super angsty atheist that was arguing with people on Reddit. Yep. <laughs> like I, that was, that was my path, but I, we kind of, we kind of ended up in the same place, but, uh, but please continue. I'm, I'm delighted that I never went on Reddit at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't remember when I first thought, started thinking that, you know, there's something else here. There's something else that um, I should be looking at rather than just, you know, science, atheism, blah, 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 blah. In September of 2019, I took a course through my university um, that was just a philosophy of science course, you know, looking at what science actually is what it does, how it creates new knowledge, and just kind of like picking apart my epistemology in front of my eyes. Um, and at the same time, I started attending these seminars held by this crazy doctor guy who started the first session by introducing the words pleroma and creatura, which come from the Gnostic tradition. Um, Jung wrote a big, long piece on it. Um, it's called Seven, Ser Seven Sermons to the Dead. It's fantastic. Everybody should read it. Um, mm -hmm. And started like building up this new epistemology in front of my eyes that I had no idea what was going on here. Um, and that's my friend, Bill. He's a, a medical doctor um, near where I live. And while I was, you know, sitting here watching science be broken down and saying, well, you know, there's all these like legitimate technical problems with using science as an exclusive means of understanding the world. And mm. here's this crazy guy rambling on about, you know, how you can like literally nothing exists that's distinct. And every person, every, every distinction that's ever been made has been made by someone and you can just make whatever distinctions you want. It was like, Oh my God, like what, what the hell is going on here? Um, and so I've, I just I so I attended a bunch of those seminars watching this new epistemology being created in front of my eyes then went away didn't talk to Bill for you know five six months and just sat with that and 
basically nothing changed except I was always like going back and thinking about this, like, hmm, that would be really interesting if I applied it to what just happened to me today. Mm. And all of a sudden I started thinking about that more and reading some books that he had recommended in a Facebook group. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I just started participating more and improvising more and thinking of myself as an agent rather than, you know, a subject in an objective universe uh, mm. and thinking of myself as something that creates and participates. Can you make a quick note uh, or like expand on what you mean by agent in this way versus like subject or object? If you ever think about like subjectivity or objectivity or, um, you know, something that exists outside of yourself, Mm. What if I told you that everything that exists is all the same and just everything that exists simply exists and there's no differentiation um, and nothing else. And you have to pick out distinctions and say, actually, no, this is different than that. Um, you know, the color green is different from the color blue. Mm. I am different from you. My family is different from your family. That sort of thing. You are ethically responsible for those distinctions that you make hmm. and here there's no subject or no object everything that exists is the same you are the same as everything else that exists it's all here um, and you need to distinguish things from other things there's no subject here there's no object here because you're the same as everything else and you participate in everything else the fundamental hmm. you know concept that replaces subjectivity and objectivity is just ethics and what's right and you need you don't need to determine what actually exists what's true you just need to determine what's right what can i what what do i want what do what's beautiful you know what sorts of things do i want to be distinct because i think that that's a nice thing to have um mm -hmm. it's just that you are ethically responsible for your distinctions and that resides in an agent and so like an agent is just something that has to make ethical distinctions and so my my idea of ethics is just very 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 fundamental to my philosophy it's like one like the second thing that comes into it you know you have this you know i think you call it kingdom of god the tao that just yeah. exists and everything's undifferentiated and it's just a certain way and then as soon as you're a participant in that system as soon as you're an agent you have to make ethical decisions and those two come together Hmm. So you're talking about seeing the world from this perspective and um, you were learning from these sermons. And then so what happened between then and now that developed um, a deep epistemological change? Like, was this recent, these sermons and everything, or was there more that happened? Um, so the sermons happened about a year and a half ago where, mm -hmm. you know, I was I was attending these seminars. And he was just, you know, saying these fucking crazy things. Um, and I've just lived with that and tried to break myself out of, oh, you know, the scientific mindset where I exist and I'm a discoverer. I'm right. seeing what's there. I'm seeing what's true. I am arguing with people. Oh, I'm right. Oh, no, you're not right. You're not right. You're wrong. Um, your decisions are bad. That sort of thing. And I'm just like living and participating and acting in a system and seeing what happens. And 
it's just it's just practice you know you start learning to play jazz and you learn to improvise and so i feel very much like i'm learning to improvise and i'm learning to play music and i'm learning to dance with people um and those are like metaphors that i go back to all the time multiple times throughout the day you know i'm i'm dancing with someone i'm should be watching their dance moves and learning to dance with them and never stopping that dance because stopping the dance would be a tragedy you wrote uh God, I hate moral theories. Just do the right thing. It's that simple. Um, and I think this is kind of what you're what you're getting at. But I think for a lot of people that think deeply about morality, uh, this this is like a nonsense concept. And there was that guy that recently wrote at length about why like vibing is dumb. And um, maybe I'll, I'll link that in the show notes or something. But can you tell me a little bit about like how people can actually practically do the right thing in difficult situations? Hmm. I try not to think too much when I'm in situations. Like, it feels like the right action just flows out of me if I do what comes naturally. Like, I don't usually think, oh, um, should I go to this party? I'm putting other people at risk. Um, blah, 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 blah. COVID that sort of thing. Like, let's use that as a, as an ethical dilemma, because that's the very first thing that popped into my head. I usually mm -hmm. don't try thinking about that so much as just saying, Hmm, how do I feel about this? Do I think this is right? Do I think this is not right? And there's, mm -hmm. there's like, there's like an intuitive sense of right and wrong, you know, like, I don't yeah. know if, if everybody has this, but it just, instead of twisting yourself up in knots about things, just do what you think is right. Like there's, there's pretty much the, that's why the tweet is written the way it is, because I don't think that <laughs> moral theories really come into it. I think that you should right. just do what you think is right. Um, yeah, it seems it always seems like people are not aware of what they're doing. Like we know what the right thing is. And then we either just tell ourselves a story that justifies the way we feel or we tell a story that like convinces us that the thing that we think is you know, intuitively moral is actually wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, this is why I think overthinking is so bad in like relationships. I talk to people about relationships all the time and they're like, oh, I I'm like with this guy and I really like him, but you know, maybe he's not making enough money for me or um, I really like him and we really get along and everything's great, but you know, his mom doesn't really like me or, or something like that. And it's kind of like they're, hanging on to all of the smallest least important things and ignoring the biggest most important thing which is that there isn't any problem that the reason things are going great is because the the feeling is what what matters most the experience am i actually happy can i notice that i'm happy um so yeah i think people get tied up a lot in feeling that their thoughts about a thing are realer than the thing itself yeah yeah I vibe with that a lot. You know, that's, that's something that I've, I've had to play with a lot to overcome that tension between, oh, I'm probably valuing my thoughts over like my firsthand felt sense of what's going on here. Right. Um, right. Exactly. And just tuning into the felt sense. Um, 
of what is going on here and just bypassing thought completely when I am trying to improvise, when I am trying to get in the flow with other people. There are times when I think it's not useful to get in the flow with other people, or I think that that shouldn't be the primary, the primary thing. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, or well, no, that's not true. I always think the primary thing is to get in flow with other people. I think there are times when thought comes into it and you have to do that because you are trying to nail down precise concepts for um, instrumentally useful goals. Yes, um, exactly. And then, you know, thinking and being precise and definitions and all that, you know, left hemisphere thing like language and, oh, right. you shouldn't vibe because vibing assumes that something is fundamentally unknowable. Yes, that's instrumentally useful. You should do that when it's useful, right. when the situation calls for it. But primarily, I think that just getting in flow and tuning into felt sense uh, and that sort of thing is, is, is much more important to me personally. The way I'm thinking about everything that you're saying is, uh, have you read Finite and Infinite Games? No, but I've gotten a fair amount of it just through yeah, it's, osmosis. It's in, the, it's in the water. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the, the basic way that I would approach this using the context of, of that book is that the infinite game is basically like being here and being playful and improvising is the, what you're talking about um, of somewhat intuitional, but I think intuition is a limited way of describing it, but it's about being fully in the change and being the change itself. Yeah. And um, so you're talking about the usefulness of thinking and you're talking about goals and that gets to the kind of like the finite game, which is essentially that we're using our agency to make distinctions in the world that allows us to create rules that limit mm. the, the, the space in which we can play in order to achieve something in the future. And this is perpetuating knowledge. This is how knowledge is perpetuated at, at every level. And um, like that, that's what words are doing. We're trying to take all of this big, big experience and describe it in this way that someone else can be manipulated into thinking about. But um, so it's all like tied together, this whole thing about agency of making distinctions. So, like if, if a person's enlightened, right? Like they're not really interacting with distinctions in any, um, in any way that feels real. And then when we're going into this, like deep into our ego, we're feeling very, very heavy distinctions. We start believing our ideas are real. So the way you kind of play with all of this is your epistemology. Like that's what I'm getting from this. Is, is there anything I'm missing? No, you summarized it very, very well. In fact, much better than I might have myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, and this is this is where I'd like to touch on what Amir asked the first part of his question about what I feel uh -huh. like about reality. Like, I think I, I I had a tweet about this. I think it was it was related to the vibe discourse saying that, um, you know, it it stuns me that people have come so far into their own frameworks that they can believe certain things cause other certain things in the mm -hmm. real world yeah like this is one of the places where i use a capital letter word r that just like r capital r real that just you know everything exists that's a capital e exists there's there's this thing out there that i know exists because i can feel the sun on my face and the ground under my toes right. and i right. can feel myself moved by music and poetry and dance um and mm -hmm. i don't need to think about 
it being real to know that it's real because I haven't yes. felt, felt sense and a first person experience of knowing it's real and wanting to believe that. So that's what I believe. Um, and then there's the like the lowercase r real where, you know, blah, 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 is climate change real? Well, yeah, sure. You can say climate change is real. You can say anything's real for instrumentally use useful purposes. That's part of making distinctions. Right. So that's how I think of it. There's, you know, the one in my wholeness, in my right brain, I know that everything is real because it's real, because it exists. And then in my left brain, in my separateness, I can take things apart and say, my right brain telling my left brain, my wholeness right. telling my separateness, let's say this is real. Let's believe that it's real. Let's treat it as, you know, objective truth. This is where the separateness comes in, you know, objective and subjective. It's a useful distinction. And then see what we can do with it and see if there's usefulness to it. I, I try to remind myself not to think of that as, oh, you know, economics actually exists and is a causal force. That seems mm -hmm. a very odd proposition to me. Yeah, what I would add to this is saying that delusions are real. Like, uh, oh, like my memories, my memories are memories and to the degree to which they're memories they they are real but to say that my memories are like facsimiles of some event in the past is a, is a stretch right my memories are merely memories and the delusions i have are real because i experience them but they're delusions and if i confuse them for being something that's going on in in the world that is greater than the way that I'm directly experiencing them, then I'm confused. What do you mean by confused? When I say confused, essentially what I'm saying is that a person is not aware the degree to which what they experience is real. Like when somebody is properly aligned with their experience of the world, I would say that is not confused. Um, so it's kind of the concept that everybody is already enlightened, but not everybody knows they're enlightened or not everybody is aware <laughs> that they're enlightened, which is, I would say that's actually kind of odd. Like it's the other way around. A lot of people are aware that they're not enlightened, but being enlightened is something that like, you're not really even, it's not something you're thinking of. You're not thinking, oh, I'm enlightened. You're just experiencing the world. Right. So it's, it's yeah. a non, it's a, not a place of ideas. It's a, it's a place of experience. And now ideas might be part of the experience, but it doesn't fit within the framework of ideas. So confused, when I say confused, it's kind of like when the ghost in you identifies with all of these things. So when the ghost in you identifies with being, you know, a Braves fan, or when the ghost <laughs> in you ident identifies with being hungry or identifies with being attacked, like all of those things that that identification is, is confused because you begin dealing with all of these distinctions, which are not really uh, consistent with the true nature of, of reality. But the reason this is difficult to talk about is because those things are still experienced, like including yeah. the identifying with the thing. And so I'm not saying that identifying with the thing is not a true experience. So it's, it's difficult, it's difficult to talk about, but I'm just using the word confused in order to kind of point at gradations of being present. Yeah. Okay. I like it. You know, I'm, I'm very glad uh, that you brought, you know, the experience back into it because, you know, I have in flow state sense of being attacked, you know, I mean, you get attacked by bears. Hopefully not, but that's, yeah, no, hopefully not. 
Unless, unless you swing at me, but <laughs> <laughs> if you write a bad tweet, I'll eat you like that fish. But um, <laughs> <laughs> there's still a very felt sense of being a brave fan. Yeah, I don't quite know where to draw that distinction of what it means to be confused. Um, so I'm glad yeah. you've done it for me. Um, I'll sit with that and I'll, I'll 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 think about it and I'll move my way through it. Um, I, I I appreciate the uh, indulging me. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of working through it myself because I have these concepts where there's like belief and then there's like root belief. So like you can believe that a photon behaves a certain way and you can believe that to the point where like you will be shouting someone's face over it, where like this is something that's really important to you. Um, but you can also believe it to the point where it's like it's something you might write about and you might talk about it being true, but in your heart, you're like, you know, it's just a made up idea. Yeah. You don't really know anything about photons. And then you, you have the, the root belief that I am in danger. Right. And there, so there's like that identification with something that's not here. And that is very, very useful for survival. And I think that's why like it exists. And so to say, Oh, get rid of it. Because then, like, you know, you'll be all happy and present and everything. That's that's not always the case. Like, this this stuff is useful. Um, like, we're talking about towards some goal, like survival. Um, but it also gets in the way of that improvisation and that play that we're mm -hmm. all capable of doing and should be doing most of the time. Um, because we're not really in danger most of the time. Being able to see that is a way of just being less confused, right? So the person that is fighting for their life is not is not confused, even though in that moment they're being extremely egoistic. But it being extremely egoistic when everything is fine is is a way of suffering toward no end. Being extremely egoistic, you know, having high agency agency in the mm -hmm. moment making many, many, many distinctions because you have to get out of this dangerous situation. That's right. fantastic. You know, we have that capacity for a reason. It's right. it's useful. It keeps us alive. But I, f I feel like I hear something, and I just want to put it out there to like try to summarize what it is you're saying. So, would you say it's confusion is when you take your distinctions, your beliefs about lowercase are real, and then impose them wholesale, like just shove them, shove them onto capital R real and like what actually exists and just say, yes, what I believe just is reality. It is reality. Yeah. I'm not listening to what's actually there. I'm listening to my own distinctions about lowercase r reality. People do this all the time in religion. And this is the thing that I always hated as a kid. And it was the thing that I hated when I rejected religion when I was like 16. And it's the concept that God is knowable and that um, it's, it's a kind of idolatry. It's the idolatry of the self. It's the idolatry of the intellect. And it's even the idolatry of God. Because when you praise or worship this concept you have of God, even though you think that's right, that is actually sinful. Like, I think that kind of person would, quote unquote, go to hell and like according to the rules of the, of the Bible and everything. Um, so like if, if someone is worshiping their idea of a thing, then they are excluding the mystery of the divine. And the mystery of the divine is what allows faith. That's what allows prayer. It's what allows 
trust. It's what allows a person to lay down their life, right? So the mystery of God is this this wonderful and unknowable thing. But when we try to box God into the the definitions because of the scripture says this and that, then I know God is this way or in that way, that hubris is disgusting. I like, <laughs> like I, I it's it's difficult for me to really describe like why I think this is like the worst thing in the world. But this is all tied together into um, the edification of of the self, and not only has it always rubbed me the wrong way, but for me, like this is the big bad enemy in the world. Yeah, that resonates. I like it. So, what do you mean by unfolding into space? Imagine, you know, hmm, you're struggling with some sort of problem, but you don't really want to struggle with it somewhere dark and dingy. So you go outside and you lie down in a hammock in the sun. And then, you know, you're struggling with your problem. You're struggling with your problem. You're sitting in the hammock. The sun's not really helping. The breeze isn't helping. The bird song is there, but you're not really listening to it because you're really in your head struggling with your problem. And then couple hours later, if you're a real thinker type, you get up, you, well, you notice your muscles are sore. So you're like, damn, I'm sore. I'm going to get up. And you just stand up. And all of a sudden there's that, ah, when you get up and you stretch your muscles and you just get up and, you know, palms in front of you. I'm actually doing it right now in my room. You just put your (laughs) palms forward, stand up, shoulders back flex all your muscles and you're just like oh yeah this feels good i feel the sun i feel the breeze i feel the bird song and your problem just unfolds it's like pop that little crease in your being is just gone because you haven't solved it rationally but you realize that it's not a problem you can either solve it or not solve it that's how i think of unfolding into space it's just there's some sort of crease in your being that you're struggling along like you're there's a rut and you can't get out of it so when that moment happens and you unfold it's like oh there's a different thing here that's outside the dichotomy of mm-hmm. problem solution mm-hmm. there's something else and that just it just evaporates it's like you're you're pulling a knot free and it just goes boop, and all of a sudden you're not creased anymore and there's there's definitely that feeling of familiarity and fitness and that sort of thing to it in 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 my in my own experience this tracks very well with something that i've been working through myself about how easy it is to be happy and people don't like hearing this and actually nick camarada wrote a little bit about this how you can just move through the world and it it it'll feel the same as if you were with your crush Right. And people responded very negatively to him saying that, like, oh, you don't know my experience and yada, yada, and to the point where he almost deleted it. So I was really writing a little bit about my experience of that. And the way I put it is that happiness is always a hairbreadth away. Like the grace of God is here. And when I'm talking about God here, I'm not talking about the God, the father, the deity that is a certain kind of person that like acts a certain kind of way. I don't think of God as, as personhood. I just want to clarify that. But I believe that like God is a really, really useful way to describe this mysteriousness of the world. And the grace of God means like we're always a hairbreadth away from achieving 
complete happiness to the point where you're like on the verge of tears like you can actually just get there and all you have to do is stop struggling against everything in the world like you can just by receiving the world like you said like standing up and receiving the world stopping your constant struggle with all of these made-up enemies so I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and practicing it, you know, because I do find myself in my head and then I just like go, dude, you're so stupid. It's like right here. Like just, just freaking smile. Like it's amazing. <laughs> it's not hard. And I mean, for the record, like I'm, I came out of like the dark night recently. I was in a, a really dark place, but even in that time I was tweeting about how easy it is to be happy. And it's true that like, all of this misery and depression is is a kind of um it's like a kind of choice it's like i i'm honoring something when i'm being depressed i'm honoring something when i'm being miserable yeah, yeah. you know and you know i might be drinking really hard and it's cuz i'm punishing myself but that's like eight, like i'm doing that intentionally and a lot of people don't want to take responsibility for that they want to blame it on a on a disease or they want to blame it on um, circumstances or on the world, but ultimately we can just look at ourselves and be like, I'm in a really dark place right now. And I'm doing this to myself. And that's, that's where I am right now. On the other side, you can also just say, I can have the agency to choose happiness in any situation. You know, I really like that you brought honoring it into, into the space because that really resonates. Like, do you ever just sit down and feel overcome by grief and then put on sad music and mm -hmm. indulge it? Like, I think right. most people have done that and they are choosing to feel sad because it is important to indulge your grief. It's important to honor that and and just attend to it. Um, and I wish people would attend to their grief or, you know, their self-loathing and, and fully express all those things. And it's very hard. It's very, very hard to fully express your grief. Hmm. It is so hard. Like it's we, we just we don't do it well. It's partially partially because of Western culture where, you know, we just don't have all that many rituals. We there's a there's a real poverty to rituals nowadays, but um honoring that fully and just fully throwing throwing yourself into whatever it is that you want to do. Like you want to indulge your depression, go do it. You know you're gonna feel like shit. But you want to do it, so just fucking do it. Right. At the same time, it feels to me like what happens if you went back to your 16-year-old self or, you know, whatever the most troubled period in your life was where you were really, really folded. You were like a crumpled up paper and like you are just crushed under, you know, I have to be this way. I have to do this thing. You're just absolutely crushed. And you say, you can just choose happiness. There's a real, a very real reaction to that like because you're not in the right space to receive that you don't yeah. even know that when you are feeling depression it's because there is a need that you have to attend to and there's so mm -hmm. much work and being and living and attending that has to be done and you don't you're, you don't have to do it consciously you can just live your life and live your life gradually more and more in attention to what your needs are. So telling somebody that, you know, you can just decide to be happy. They can't just decide to be happy because there is work to be done that they have not yet done. Yeah. And by saying that, it 
sometimes pushes them the other way. They're like, no, you're stupid. Why would right. I ever just how, how, how would I be able to choose to be happy? So like, I definitely understand that reaction. Um, yeah. And I would have had the same reaction in my most troubled periods where I felt like a crumpled piece of paper. Um, right. Yeah. The way I'm kind of thinking of this crumpling, um, the, the way I have it in my mind is it's, um, I call it wanting too many things. And the way this basically works is that when we want too many things, we become like impossible to satisfy. This pulls us in so many different directions. And then our like internal energies begin to fight against one another. And this creates um, like a lot of personal inefficiencies in, in achieving what we what we really want, our priorities. And it also kind of just drains us of energy because we're, we're in this constant struggle against ourselves. What we can do is like, if you are aligned toward doing one thing and it's all you want, then there's like nothing in the world that can prevent you from getting it, right? Like if, if you are fully aligned. And this is also true for working through your emotions. So this is also applies to, for instance, like experiencing your grief. In uh, the book called Spiritually Incorrect uh, Enlightenment, there's a girl that's like kind of going through uh, spiritual autolysis and working through the like kind of the gradual destruction of the ego. And she writes about how how she can't imagine anyone doing that process while also holding up a job. And I think this is what makes it so difficult for people to work through a lot of their emotions. It's because they do want to work through them, but they also don't want to lose their job and they don't want to damage their relationships. And so they have all of this grief that wants to be honored, and but they're at work trying to keep it together. And then it comes flooding at them all at once in, in a way that's violent. And that's all, that's just so difficult. I think that a person can get the the tool set of working through these emotions very quickly, but that can look like an incredibly violent emotional process mm-hmm. that to a lot of people is, I mean, this isn't a great word for it, but it's not very attractive to see the person that is experiencing overwhelming grief for something that perhaps other people don't think is very important. But to them, working through this grief is kind of like how you get through the dark night if you're really, really good at that, like if you're, if you're trying to return to a place of pristine excellence, there is a lot to work through. Yeah. Let's say that you, you only want one thing and that's to stop yourself from experiencing all of your pent up grief. Mm -hmm. Like you only want one thing, but that thing is a fundamental denial of your own existence. And to me, the way I think of, I think about grief in a lot of ways, it's a very important concept for me. Um, but one way I think about it is as like a sort of old God, you can't deny the old gods, like things like disease and grief, they come into your house. And if you try to keep them out of your house, they will break down the door and it will go very badly for you. There are lots of stories about this in mm-hmm. just about every mythology you can find. You do not deny the old gods. So I think a lot of people they don't want much. And I felt this too. You know, I have tried to stop myself from feeling grief. I have tried distraction and addiction and other sorts of things, none of which words for which are coming to mind at the moment. Mm -hmm. But you cannot deny the old gods without incurring harm on yourself. It's just terrible. 
terrible sorts of things. Like you can you you can imagine the worst horror stories possible about people who just won't let themselves align with their own existence. You know, if you don't um, take the necessary steps towards healing, you know, some there are some sorts of trauma where alcoholism, for example, where you cannot get better by self-control. You have to go deeper into alcoholism and deeper and deeper and deeper until you have hit a sort of bottom where you realize fundamentally in the parts of your beings that drink that you cannot, you are helpless. You cannot control your drinking. It is impossible to control yourself because you want to drink. And so you have to say, I am helpless. And this is where the 12-step program for alcoholism works really well. Like you submit yourself to some sort of higher power and say that I am helpless. I am helpless. I am helpless. But I can do this not through controlling myself, but by submitting myself to something that's greater. Um, but when, you, when you're coming back to that um, and saying, I've aligned myself with my existence, you know, I want to drink. That's why I'm doing it or I cannot control myself from not drinking, mm -hmm. um, then you are aligning yourself with what exists, the capital R real. You're not denying that anymore. You're not confused anymore. You, like, you can want things that are terribly, terribly confused, but when you want the things that aren't confused, life is much better. Life is just much better. This gets to being able to accept what's going on, right? So like when we see that we're helpless, a lot of people might might take this nihilistically and um, that's not that's not wrong. It's just not the whole picture, um, which is that like, yes, we are helpless, but there's actually a really awesome way of interpreting that, mm -hmm. which is that like the way in which I'm not helpless is the way in which I can frame my perception of the world and I might be helpless in my actions. I might simply find myself here, which is how I like to frame it, which is that like, I merely find myself here. Boom, I'm here once again. Like I am always beginning. I believe that's true for all experience. Like it's all the same material. It's kind of like you turn on the television and you're in the middle of a video game all of a sudden. And the situation is the situation. I can't change five seconds ago. That's, that's gone. There's no changing it. But here I am with this new situation. What am I going to do about it? when we stop trying to struggle against the delusions of our, of our memories and simply try to be fully here now and receive um, the bounty of what is here now, even though we are helpless about where we find ourselves, we can just accept that the world is great, that it's great to be alive. And the difficult things have their own beauty. Like even the depths of depression are beautiful in, in, a, in a kind of way and the only thing I think that's that's not beautiful is delusions that separate us from our ability to access the grace of God. Mm -hmm. So where are you on your spiritual journey? Like I just came out of, uh, I've mentioned this earlier, but I came out of a dark night. I'm not sure if you could tell I was in a dark night to give mm -hmm. our listeners a little bit of context. In the past two episodes, I was talking about meeting up with a girl and she got in a very bad accident and uh, we stopped speaking after that. And um, before that, I was in a very good place. I was like on Eigen's show talking about, um, you know, how present uh, you can be in the world. And I was full of positivity and, and excitement and uh, almost an 
aggressive positive energy. And then that happened. And it, I was so vulnerable um, because I had no guards up because I was just just actively accepting everything in the world. So I had so I was like like a small child or, or like a baby. And then that was just a truck that hit me. And um, and I was devast devastated like. I could barely work. I was such a such a mess. And I heard that like that when you access these like areas of awesome presence, this experience of the dark night always follows. It's just waiting for like a trigger or something. Um, and yeah, so that was my yeah. trigger. So it it allows me to accept it a little bit more, knowing that it was kind of inevitable. Um, it's just it that hit me in a way that is especially traumatic for me um so it was like the worst thing um one of the worst experiences i've ever been through even though looking at it from the outside you can kind of see why it shouldn't like it, it shouldn't have been that big of a deal for the record she's okay she's physically she's fine um it's just that our relationship is over um so that's where i am in like in my uh spiritual journey is that i was in a in a place of extreme presence and then I went through the dark night and now, um, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. But, uh, if anybody's curious why I, I haven't been doing a show, it's because it, it didn't feel right to, to be doing a show while, while I was going through that. First, I'd like to say, I'm very glad that you're back on your show. Um, I'm glad that you were in tune with it not feeling right. A lot of people would have said, I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. And mm -hmm. frankly, their quality and, and, and just their show would have suffered. So I'm, I'm very glad that you were able to put down the pieces of your life that didn't fit and say, I will pick these back up when I need to. Yeah. So I'm very glad to hear that. And as for myself, man, I've got no fucking clue. <laughs> I don't have any, I don't have any stories of, I don't really believe that any single spiritual framework is the right one. Mm-hmm. I had a tweet that was in a long thread, partially about grief and gratitude. Um, so it's, it's topical for sure. But um, the tweet went, have you ever called yourself an atheist, a monotheist, a polytheist, and an animist all in the same day? Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot. And I don't really think that there's a single spiritual journey. So I have no fucking clue, man. Like I can go outside and I can sit with the grass and I can sway with the grass and feel my breath be the same breath as the grass. And I can sit at a dinner table and feel the dance physically, like in my feet. And I can feel my feet start to move and I can feel myself like tuning into that sort of song. And it's all felt sense. And it's not, oh, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Like I can just feel that happening. And at the same time, you know, I can wake up really hungry and make myself breakfast. Like this, it's still mundanity. And I like that, you know, I like not every experience feeling sacred and charged with meaning. Mm -hmm. Like, man, sometimes I just want to, you know, make some eggs and eat them because I'm fucking hungry. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, I'm in improvisation. I don't know what comes next. Yeah, it's kind of like letting go of the narrative, right? Like that's what what all this is is that um like if you believe too deeply in any ideology that's kind of like spitting in the face of god because you're shutting yourself away from being able to receive the the unknowableness of what's next or what's here um i want to ask a little bit about about whimsy twitter which is a total, total oh, heart change here yes please 
there's all this play and positivity among mostly adults. And I'm curious if you think that like all of this fun and play and positivity is hiding some kind of like Peter Pan-esque darkness where like this is a way of like coping with trauma i think for people possibly right that they're spending hours every day really like in this in this fun playful zone but it's not it's not the same as just kind of like a pastime it, it seems like it's in, inhabiting some kind of mode that is honoring a child that that needs to love like that's that's what i think about whimsy twitter <laughs> Yeah, thank you for your your perspective. Now that you now that you mention it, like it there is a lot of honoring a child that need love that goes on. You know, partially I'm delighted that the space exists because it's just fun. Um right. and if people are honoring a need that they have at the same time, you know that's good. You know, you might you might like people might be worried that they're honoring it and they don't realize it. So the effects aren't felt and mm -hmm. they aren't getting better and they're just spiraling deeper and deeper into entertaining this child without realizing that there's a child inside that also needs a hug instead of just entertainment. I mean, I don't know. I'm not inside these people's heads. I do it because it's fun. I do it because there's a sense of inspiration that comes from it. My own creative process is I'll be sitting in a garden weeding and a tweet will come into my head fully formed and I'll just type it out as fast as I can with autocorrect turned off so that it's typo to shit. Um, that's just what I, what I do. And so do I think that there are people on whimsy Twitter who are in need of some sort of work? You could call it trauma. I don't like that word. I don't like that frame. So I try not to call it that. Well, tell me, tell me more about that. What don't you like about it? Hmm. <laughs> I just don't like the vibe. <laughs> it, it's really it's really just that like i i i there's so much work and thought that has gone into resolving trauma and trauma-based therapy and blah 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 and a lot of it feels like um interacting with a child as if they're an adult like you know you're an adult so you know you walk into a therapist's office and they see you and they see you know a 30 year old who has is a professional and has a job and has mental health issues and there's something very serious about that but you think they need to be treated like children like more more like vulnerable no i don't think they i, I don't i don't think they need to be treated like children i think that they need to find a way to tap into the childhood that is inside them i think that they need to read children's stories i think mm -hmm. that they need to go play on a play structure yeah i think that they need to in absence of those sorts of things to be engaged with some sort of you know whatever it is rhythmical poetry yeah. very very simple singing communal song is very very good for this you know what's funny about this is that i just did that thread where i was telling people their ages yeah and they were all like 15 or 16 or 17 mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and a lot of people were just like kind of icked by that <laughs> But it, but it's, it, I would say, attracts a little bit with what you're talking about. Um, but you're, you're talking about the, the typos and everything. What, what's the deal with that? Like you and mycelium are, are both really <laughs> big on the typos. The typos started because I was like, oh, my, 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 um, my words keep autocorrecting to other words that are not what I meant. So I'm just gonna turn off 
autocorrect and you know to hell with it if people want to figure out what i'm saying they'll figure out what i'm saying um and it just like it just happens you know i hit the wrong key my typing isn't very good i have really thick fingers so <laughs> you know it's just and it's it feels playful like um a friend of mine um i think his name is leo tenebrae or something he's a lion dude on twitter you'll you'll Mm -hmm. see him every so often um he said that it's like talking to a five-year-old child who hasn't figured out the language yet and i really like that you know i think that there should be a five-year-old child on twitter um who is just saying absolute gibberish um and for those who actually want to figure out what i'm saying you know having to put it back together is i think it's fun I, I always enjoy when yeah. Mage it is a little bit of a puzzle. Yeah, whenever Sometimes. Mage sends send me a DM and I'm like, yeah. what the fuck did you just say? <sighs> and then I have to, you know, think about it and say, oh, okay, this is what this letter means. Um, but it's also it's also just very it has like a very earnest and whimsical vibe to it, um, which I think is is a good um it's a good balance to the heavily, heavily ironic shit posting that happens quite often yeah solar t-rex wants to know <laughs> who you think solar t-rex is i've got no clue who solar t-rex is i thought it was you <laughs> <laughs> i wish i wish i really did uh, i was like no uh. i have i have no idea who solar t-rex is i've like other people have um have guesses and i'm like yeah it could be right but right now, like, Solar T-Rex is just Solar T-Rex in my head. Mm-mm. Now, my favorite, my favorite would be if uh, if Solar T-Rex were humongous. You know, humongous, <laughs> yeah. his old app was Humongous Eternal. He's the guy who just types in all caps and says truly, truly awful things on the timeline. I love the guy. <laughs> I, I, I love him so much. I, I hope it's him. <laughs> I think that that would be a very, a very good um, offset to his normal Twitter brand. So that's who I hope it is, but I have no I have no clue. So why egg profit? Like I, I know that like um it was it was probably had something to do with like Eigenrobot and Adventure Time. Um, but it, it seemed to kind of come out of left field and it seemed to be like the first of its kind where you were everybody was doing a little bit of an of a, a robot thing and you kind of did the egg thing instead. Um, but why eggs? I started doing a tradition last March, kind of like tarot and, you know, a bunch of the woo stuff where when I was making my eggs in the morning, I would crack them and put them into a bowl and scramble them up. And then before I started cooking them or anything, like look at the pattern and say, does this have some guidance for me? Or like ask it a question or that sort of thing. Wow. And just do this spontaneous sort of interpretation. Um and then give a prophecy and it might not be a prophecy you want to hear or it might be a prophecy you want to hear and then you eat the eggs and you commit to that and it nourishes you even if it's something that you don't want to hear and it keeps you going and that's the start of your day eating your shadows but they're eggs So now I'm thinking this is like all of the eggs you've eaten, like thousands and thousands of prophecies. <laughs> I did not, I did not expect it to be this deep. Oh man, wow! A friend of mine was like, before I even like, I was on Twitter in a different corner of Twitter, but that's 
not really something I need to talk about today. Um, I was mentioning my egg prophecy to them, and they're like, damn, bro, you're like the, fir the world's first egg prophet. I'm like, hey, that's a nice thing. I'm going to take that name. And so mm -hmm. when I wanted to make a Twitter account because I was in like eigenrobot adjacent circles, I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds, it fits, you know? Yeah. And then I searched Adventure Time Egg because I wanted to be in universe with the dude who had introduced me to the space. And I've never watched Adventure Time. I have no clue what it's about. <laughs> the little egg guy is 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 cute. Yeah, I think he's only on the first episode just for like a little <laughs> while. And as I was like, man, Great. that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty esoteric. I'm a little bit character. I'm a little bit character. Perfect. I wanted to ask you about this tweet because I feel like it could be about a lot of different things. Um, you said, if I wanted to make someone feel excluded, I would probably create a real complex model of the world that uses completely unintuitive distinctions and take a bunch of normal words and redefine them to mean very specific things that are kind of, but not really the same. Is that about like legibility? Is that about enlightenment? Is that about rationalists? Like, uh, can you tell me what this means? <laughs> <laughs> it can be whatever you want to you want it mm. to be about i mean what does it mean I, to the, you the context the context of it was somebody retweeted yud onto my timeline uh. and i was reading and i was like i don't know what the fuck this guy is talking about <laughs> um and then there were like other people who were talking to him about it and like they were having a conversation and the whole time i was like this doesn't this like this doesn't mean anything i'm not getting anything out of this like what is going on here so I, you know, sat down and wrote this tweet and, you know, it can be about anything. Um, I mean, I think one of my very first tweets was um, death of the author, but the author was only ever nominally alive in the first place. You know, I don't claim any ownership over what my tweets mean. If somebody wants to take it and, you know, misinterpret it or think it's stupid or like make a paper mache soccer ball out of my tweets i don't care what you do with it just have fun with it so the context is you know rationalists were taking over my timeline and i didn't like it but <laughs> what i'm thinking about is that like excluding is a is a way of belonging yeah so like people are they make these incredibly small niches and it's kind of like there's nothing more exclusionary than an inside joke but those inside jokes make people feel connected yeah so i'm wondering like the way you tweeted this is it's, it's talking about excluding others but it makes me wonder if like the complexity that people are dealing with is is intended to make them feel more connected because these barriers to entry kind of create a a niche for them to participate with others and this kind of mirrors a little bit of, of what we're doing um yeah. the way we handle i mean we handle a lot of words in in even just the word rationalist but we handle a lot of words in in a way that is very different from uh from other people and we do a lot of things like the the whole i don't even know where that came from but like the animal meme of um oh i love this animal <laughs> I even I felt excluded. Would you like to know where it came from? Sure, but uh, even I felt excluded because I was like, I don't know what 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 is this? Where, where is this coming from? But yeah, go on. All, all of the crazy stuff you see on the timeline comes from Cheesecake. It it just she's she's a little trickster god of the corner of Twitter, so it was Cheesecake. Um, uh. But you know, to use a rationalist concept, walling your garden is very useful. 
I mean, Winzy Twitter has a really high barrier to entry. Like you have to figure out what the hell this means. Like there are people who have typos in every single word and it's (laughs) like, it's a skill to be able to figure out what the hell they mean. And you need to know like my typos and Mage's typos have very different flavors when I look at them. Like Mage just kind of sticks, like he just hammers the keyboard and there's quite often, you know, a lot of extra letters and they're very gentle letters there's a lot of l's and j's and i's and <laughs> not very many x's and there's a flavor to this illegibility hard yeah there's there's definitely a flavor and mine is just like i hit the wrong key there's only one letter it's like a substitution thing um so like there's a there's a there's a high barrier to entry there and i don't really know how i feel about it because mm. i haven't thought about it but i like my corner of twitter i don't really want people coming in and saying no, you have to stop making typos. You know, you have that right. whole thread about authoritarianism and seeing how people dictate your use of words or your spellings is a way of saying, oh, do I want this person to be a friend if they're authoritarian? No, I don't. Um, so I think that that thread was one of the reasons that I just turned off autocorrect in the first place because i was like it'll be fun being yourself in a wacky way is an excellent way to weed out the people you do not want to spend time with and by doing the opposite when we're when we're trying to fit into the mold of other people we just invite all of these people that we don't even want to be with so it's yeah. like so self-defeating to try and be the way anybody wants us to be um but I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you are doing. Uh, like somebody told me you're doing like some homesteading thing or farming and mm-hmm. you, you talk about how much you love dirt. So, can <laughs> you, so can you tell me a little bit about what you're up to? So uh, right now I am working at a permaculture farm on Manitoulin Island, which is like in Northern Ontario, kind of halfway between Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury. For those of you who have like arcanely good knowledge of what Ontario looks like. Um, but I'm, it's not really a farm. It's more of like a big gardening operation. We've got like 15 garden beds, a couple greenhouses, and we're just growing things. Like it's a community of really, really wonderful people. Um, what do you who, do with the plants? Well, we plant them and then we grow them and then we eat them. So it's like a, so it's for personal consumption. Yes. It's for personal consumption. We don't, we don't sell anything. We don't make enough to sell anything. Um, we have a project. We're trying to start a food forest. There's some conservation land right next to us um, that we have use over so long as it doesn't look commercial. So we're planning to plant a bunch of fruit trees and um, some edible like ground cover um, that's native to the area that's edible, but has been taken over by, you know, field um, and just try to restore that land to the extremely productive forest that it used to be um before it was used for um commercial farming and so i'm really excited for that project yeah that's real that's that's like seeing like a state in practice yeah that's cool it's like just just you know finding that lowest level energy state for the land which is actually very very energy efficient you know you have all the trees and all of the energy that comes from the sun is turned into something useful um and yet it's what the land would naturally do if you just left it. I find that concept so aesthetically satisfying. That's so cool. Um, so yeah, I live in a hut that has no glass windows. It's just screens. And 
and there's a lake right behind me and every night when the sun sets i go over and stand on a big rock and take a picture of a sunset for my friend olga who likes sunsets and clouds and stuff and yeah it's just every day i have my hands in the dirt or i'm building tables or i'm welding you're just doing something in the real world that's not on a screen um and it's very healing it's very healing it's it's like you're realizing you're in a dance instead of you know staring at a screen all day and writing tweets and writing code and doing dumb shit where there's no feedback um but like there's actual feedback here you know i love i love being dirty now i love the feeling of having dirt on my arms and hands and under my nails even when i'm eating eating dinner like it just it just feels wholesome so how many people are here uh there are 10 or so maybe maybe 12 how did you how did you get started with this i looked it up on well well, I wanted to do some sort of in-person farming thing. So I looked up um, like permaculture farming Ontario and this place popped up. Um, and I have no idea why it popped up considering it's such a small thing, but it did. Uh, and I called up the, um, the guy who runs it, Justin, and said, hey, Justin, I have no experience farming. I have no experience using... Like, I mean, I've used power tools, but I've never used them as a job. And like, can I come and live here for the summer? And he's like, yeah, sure. We will make it work. So it's it's a very nice group of people. So how long have you been there? I've been here since the start of May. Oh, okay. So this is pretty recent. Yeah, it's pretty recent. Uh, staying for the summer and then potentially going back to school in the fall. So you are have recently entered the spiritual journey and you're coupling this by like returning to the land and interacting with life and nature in this deeply present way i think that's so beautiful like i, I think that's so awesome <laughs> um that's just like an it's just absolutely incredible and i love that and i wanted to thank you for coming on i have a couple closing thoughts if you don't mind oh yeah no go ahead yeah so i want to give two prescriptions for people. Um, for you, Nick, I would like to ask you first, do you know anyone who has PTSD? Mm. It's a very personal question, and I apologize if you're not comfortable with it, but I think that this is important. I don't, I don't think so. Okay. I'd like you to find somewhere in your community where there are people who suffer from PTSD or are recovering from it and who are like deep in their struggle with it. Deep in their struggle. If you have any friends who are therapists, they'll be able to help you. If you mm -hmm. have any therapists in your past, they'll be able to help you. And I want you to go and talk to somebody with PTSD and just ask them what their relationship to memory is. Mm. I will do that. And for everybody else who doesn't understand what Nick means when he talks about, you can just decide to be happy. As I've been on this podcast, I've been sitting and looking out at the long grass that surrounds my hut and watching it sway in the breeze. So I'd like to invite you to go find somewhere near where you live that has long grass. And on a, you know, just a nice summer's day, go there, sit in the long grass, make sure you have long pants and a long sleeve shirt if you're somewhere where there are ticks, and just sit in the grass and close your eyes and breathe. And breathe. And breathe. And I think that that would do you some good. Thank you so much, Egg Prophet.
thank you for squeezing me in with such short notice. I had a really good time and I, I feel a lot closer to you now that we were able to talk about all of this stuff. And I, I definitely feel a, a brotherhood with all of uh, the things you've been going through. So appreciate yeah. you, man. I appreciate it too. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. I, uh, it came as a surprise, you know, we've interacted a lot more when our accounts were smaller and now that yeah. they're big, you know, there's, you know, a drifting apart. So I appreciate that you're, you invited me here and yeah, it's fantastic. I am so grateful that Alex was able to come on. You can find him on Twitter at eggprofit. You can subscribe to more episodes at becomingcreature.substack.com. The new music is by Frank IV. I think he did a great job. Thank you so much, Frank. And the art is by Foreshaper. And we have more music that is by Murphy Chicken. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next time.